Chapter Second, Sections Nine through Ten, and Chapter Third, Sections One through Two of The World Set Free. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. The World Set Free by H. G. Wells. Chapter Second, Sections Nine through Ten, and Chapter Third, Sections One through Two. Section Nine. Morning found Barnett still afloat. The bows of his barge had been badly strained, and his men were pumping or bailing in relays. He had got about a dozen half-drowned people aboard whose boat had capsized near him, and he had three other boats in tow. He was afloat and somewhere between Amsterdam and Alkmaar, but he could not tell where. It was a day that was still half night. Gray waters stretched in every direction under a dark gray sky, and out of the waves rose the upper parts of houses, in many cases ruined. The tops of trees, windmills, in fact the upper third of all the familiar Dutch scenery and on it there drifted a dimly seen flotilla of barges small boats many overturned furniture rafts timbering and miscellaneous objects the drowned were under water that morning only here and there did a dead cow or a stiff figure still clinging stoutly to a box or chair or such like buoy hint at the hidden massacre it was not till the thursday that the dead came to the surface in any quantity the view was bounded on every side by a gray mist that closed overhead in a gray canopy the air cleared in the afternoon and then far away to the west under great banks of steam and dust the flaming red eruption of the atomic bombs came visible across the waste of water they showed flat and sullen through the mist like london sunsets they sat upon the sea says Barnett, like frayed-out water-lilies of flame. Barnett seems to have spent the morning in rescue work along the track of the canal, in helping people who were adrift, in picking up derelict boats, and in taking people out of imperiled houses. He found other military barges similarly employed, and it was only as the day wore on and the immediate appeals for aid were satisfied that he thought of food and drink for his men, and what course he had better pursue. They had a little cheese, but no water. Orders, that mysterious direction, had at last altogether disappeared. He perceived he had now to act upon his own responsibility. One's sense was of a destruction so far-reaching and of a world so altered that it seemed foolish to go in any direction and expect to find things as they had been before the war began. I sat on the quarter-deck with Milius, my engineer, and Kemp, and two others of the non-commissioned officers, and we consulted upon our line of action. We were foodless and aimless we agreed that our fighting value was extremely small and that our first duty was to get ourselves in touch with food and instructions again whatever plan of campaign had directed our movements was manifestly smashed to bits Milius was of opinion that we could take a line westward and get back to england across the north sea he calculated that with such a motor barge as ours it would be possible to reach the Yorkshire coast within four and twenty hours. 
but this idea I overruled because of the shortness of our provisions and, more particularly, because of our urgent need of water. Every boat we drew near now hailed us for water, and their demands did much to exasperate our thirst. I decided that if we went away to the south we should reach hilly country, or at least country that was not submerged, and then we should be able to land, find some stream, drink, and get supplies and news. Many of the barges adrift in the haze about us were filled with British soldiers and had floated up from the Nord Sea Canal, but none of them were any better informed than ourselves of the course of events. Orders had, in fact, vanished out of the sky. Orders made a temporary reappearance late that evening in the form of a megaphone hail from a British torpedo boat, announcing a truce, and giving the welcome information that food and water were being hurried down the Rhine and were to be found on the barge flotilla lying over the old Rhine above Leiden. We will not follow Barnett, however, in the description of his strange overland voyage among trees and houses and churches by Zandam and between Harlem and Amsterdam to Leiden. It was a voyage in a red-lit mist, in a world of steamy silhouette, full of strange voices and perplexity, and with every other sensation dominated by a feverish thirst. We sat, he says, in a little huddled group, saying very little, and the men forward were mere knots of silent endurance. Our only continuing sound was the persistent mewing of a cat one of the men had rescued from a floating hayrick near Zandam. We kept a southward course by a watch-chain compass Milius had produced. I do not think any of us felt we belonged to a defeated army, nor had we any strong sense of the war as the dominating fact about us. Our mental setting had far more of the effect of a huge natural catastrophe. The atomic bombs had dwarfed the international issues to complete insignificance. When our minds wandered from the preoccupations of our immediate needs, we speculated upon the possibility of stopping the use of these frightful explosives before the world was utterly destroyed. For to us it seemed quite plain that these bombs and the still greater power of destruction of which they were the precursors might quite easily shatter every relationship and institution of mankind. "'What will they be doing?' asked Milius. "'What will they be doing? It's plain we've got to put an end to war. It's plain things have to be run some way. This, all this, is impossible.' I made no immediate answer. Something, I cannot think what, had brought back to me the figure of that man I had seen wounded on the very first day of actual fighting. I saw again his angry, tearful eyes, and that poor, dripping, bloody mess that had been a skillful human hand five minutes before. Thrust out in indignant protest. Damned foolery! he had stormed and sobbed. Damned foolery! My right hand, sir! My right hand! My faith had for a time gone altogether out of me. I think we are too, too silly, I said to Milius, ever to stop war. If we'd had the sense to do it, we should have done it before this. I think this. I pointed to the gaunt black outline of a smashed windmill that stuck up, ridiculous and ugly, above the blood-lit waters. This is the end. Section 10. 
But now our history must part company with Frederick Barnett and his barge-load of hungry and starving men. For a time in Western Europe, at least it was indeed as if civilization had come to a final collapse. These crowning buds upon the tradition that Napoleon planted and Bismarck watered opened and flared like water-lilies aflame, over nations destroyed, over churches smashed or submerged, towns ruined, fields lost to mankind forever, and a million weltering bodies. Was this lesson enough for mankind, or would the flames of war still burn amidst the ruins? Neither Barnett nor his companions, it is clear, had any assurance in their answers to that question. Already, once in the history of mankind, in America, before its discovery by the whites, an organized civilization had given way to a mere cult of warfare, specialized and cruel, and it seemed for a time to many a thoughtful man as if the whole world was but to repeat on a larger scale this ascendancy of the warrior this triumph of the destructive instincts of the race. The subsequent chapters of Barnett's narrative do but supply body to this tragic possibility. He gives a series of vignettes of civilization, shattered, it seemed, almost irreparably. He found the Belgian hills swarming with refugees and desolated by cholera. The vestiges of the contending armies, keeping order under a truce without actual battles, but with the cautious hostility of habit, and a great absence of plan everywhere. Overhead, aeroplanes went on mysterious errands, and there were rumors of cannibalism and hysterical fanaticisms in the valleys of the Samoy and the forest region of the eastern Ardennes. There was the report of an attack upon Russia by the Chinese and Japanese, and of some huge revolutionary outbreak in America. The weather was stormier than men had ever known it in those regions, with much thunder and lightning and wild cloudbursts of rain. Chapter the Third, The Ending of War, Section 1 on the mountainside, above the town of Brizago, and commanding two long stretches of Lake Maggiore, looking eastward to Bellinzona and southward to Luino, there is a shelf of grass meadows which is very beautiful in springtime with a great multitude of wild flowers. More particularly is this so in early June, when the slender asphodel St. Bruno's lily, with its spike of white blossom, is in flower. To the westward of this delightful shelf there is a deep and densely wooded trench, a great gulf of blue some miles or so in width out of which arise great precipices, very high and wild. Above the asphodel fields the mountains climb in rocky slopes to solitudes of stone and sunlight that curve round and join that wall of cliffs in one common skyline. This desolate and austere background contrasts very vividly with the glowing serenity of the great lake below, with the spacious view of fertile hills and roads and villages and islands to south and east, and with the hotly golden rice flats of the Val Maggia to the north, and because it was a remote and insignificant place, far away out of the crowding tragedies of that year of disaster, away from burning cities and starving multitudes, bracing and tranquilizing and hidden, it was here that there gathered the conference of rulers that was to arrest, if possible, before it was too late, the debacle of civilization. 
Here, brought together by the indefatigable energy of that impassioned humanitarian, LeBlanc, the French ambassador at Washington, the chief powers of the world were to meet in a last desperate conference to save humanity. LeBlanc was one of those ingenious men whose lot would have been insignificant in any period of security, but who have been caught up to an immortal role in history by the sudden simplification of human affairs through some tragical crisis to the measure of their simplicity such a man was abraham lincoln and such was garibaldi and leblanc with his transparent childish innocence his entire self-forgetfulness came into this confusion of distrust and intricate disaster with an invincible appeal for the manifest sanities of the situation his voice, when he spoke, was full of remonstrance. He was a little bald, spectacled man, inspired by that intellectual idealism which has been one of the peculiar gifts of France to humanity. He was possessed of one clear persuasion, that war must end, and that the only way to end war was to have but one government for mankind. He brushed aside all other considerations. At the very outbreak of the war, so soon as the two capitals of the belligerents had been wrecked, he went to the president of the White House with this proposal. He made it as if it was a matter of course. He was fortunate to be in Washington and in touch with that gigantic childishness which was the characteristic of the American imagination. For the Americans also were among the simple peoples by whom the world was saved. He won over the American president and the American government to his general ideas. At any rate, they supported him sufficiently to give him a standing with the more skeptical European governments, and with this backing he set to work. It seemed the most fantastic of enterprises to bring together all the rulers of the world and unify them. He wrote innumerable letters. He sent messages. He went on desperate journeys. He enlisted whatever support he could find. No one was too humble for an ally or too obstinate for his advances. Through the terrible autumn of the last wars, this persistent little visionary in spectacles must have seemed rather like a hopeful canary twittering during a thunderstorm. And no accumulation of disasters daunted his conviction that they could be ended. For the whole world was flaring then into a monstrous phase of destruction power after power about the armed globe sought to anticipate attack by aggression they went to war in a delirium of panic in order to use their bombs first china and japan had assailed russia and destroyed moscow the united states had attacked japan india was in anarchistic revolt with delhi a pit of fire spouting death and flame the redoubtable king of the balkans was mobilizing it must have seemed plain at last to everyone in those days that the world was slipping headlong to anarchy by the spring of nineteen fifty nine from nearly two hundred centers and every week added to their number roared the unquenchable crimson conflagrations of the atomic bombs the flimsy fabric of the world's credit had vanished industry was completely disorganized and every city every thickly populated area was starving or trembled on the verge of starvation most of the capital cities of the world were burning millions of people had already perished and over great areas government was at an end humanity has been compared by one contemporary writer to a sleeper who handles matches in his sleep and wakes to find himself in flames 
For many months it was an open question whether there was to be found throughout all the race the will and intelligence to face these new conditions and make even an attempt to arrest the downfall of the social order. For a time, the war spirit defeated every effort to rally the forces of preservation and construction. Leblanc seemed to be protesting against earthquakes, and as likely to find a spirit of reason in the crater of Etna. Even though the shattered official governments now clamored for peace, bands of irreconcilables and invincible patriots, usurpers, adventurers, and political desperados were everywhere in possession of the simple apparatus for the disengagement of atomic energy and the initiation of new centers of destruction. The stuff exercised an irresistible fascination upon a certain type of mind. Why should anyone give in while he can still destroy his enemies? Surrender, while there is still a chance of blowing them to dust? The power of destruction, which had once been the ultimate privilege of government, was now the only power left in the world. And it was everywhere. There were few thoughtful men during that phase of blazing waste who did not pass through such moods of despair as Barnett describes, and declare with him, This is the end. And all the while, Leblanc was going to and fro with glittering glasses and an inexhaustible persuasiveness, urging the manifest reasonableness of his view upon ears that ceased presently to be inattentive. Never at any time did he betray a doubt that all this chaotic conflict would end. No nurse during a nursery uproar was ever so certain of the inevitable ultimate peace. From being treated as an amiable dreamer, he came by insensible degrees to be regarded as an extravagant possibility. Then he began to seem even practicable. The people who listened to him in 1958 with a smiling impatience were eager before 1959 was four months old to know just exactly what he thought might be done. He answered with the patience of a philosopher and the lucidity of a Frenchman he began to receive responses of a more and more hopeful type he came across the atlantic to italy and there he gathered in the promises for this congress he chose those high meadows above brisago for the reasons we have stated we must get away he said from old associations he set to work requisitioning material for his conference with an assurance that was justified by the replies with a slight incredulity, the conference, which was to begin a new order in the world, gathered itself together. Leblanc summoned it without arrogance. He controlled it by virtue of an infinite humility. Men appeared upon those upland slopes with the apparatus for wireless telegraphy. Others followed with tents and provisions. A little cable was flung down to a convenient point upon the Locarno road below. Leblanc arrived sedulously directing every detail that would affect the tone of the assembly. He might have been a courier in advance rather than the originator of the gathering. And then there arrived, some by the cable, most by aeroplane, a few in other fashions, the men who had been called together to confer upon the state of the world. It was to be a conference without a name. Nine monarchs, the presidents of four republics, a number of ministers and ambassadors, powerful journalists, and such like prominent and influential men took part in it. There were even scientific men, and that world-famous old man, Holston, came with the others to contribute his amateur statecraft to the desperate problem of the age. 
Only LeBlanc would have dared so to summon figureheads and powers and intelligence, or have had the courage to hope for their agreement. Section 2 and one at least of those who were called to this conference of governments came to it on foot. This was King Egbert, the young king of the most venerable kingdom in Europe. He was a rebel, and had always been of deliberate choice a rebel against the magnificence of his position. He affected long pedestrian tours, and a disposition to sleep in the open air. He came now over the pass of Sta Maria Maggiore, and by boat up the lake to Brissago, Thence he walked up the mountain, a pleasant path set with oaks and sweet chestnut. For provision on the walk, for he did not want to hurry, he carried with him a pocketful of bread and cheese. A certain small retinue that was necessary to his comfort and dignity upon occasions of state he sent on by the cable car, and with him walked his private secretary, Firmin, a man who had thrown up the professorship of world politics in the London School of Sociology, Economics, and Political Science to take up these duties. Firmin was a man of strong rather than rapid thought. He had anticipated great influence in this new position, and after some years he was still only beginning to apprehend how largely his function was to listen. Originally he had been something of a thinker upon international politics, an authority upon tariffs and strategy, and a valued contributor to various of the higher organs of public opinion. But the atomic bombs had taken him by surprise, and he had still to recover completely from his pre-atomic opinions and the silencing effect of those sustained explosives. The king's freedom from the trammels of etiquette was very complete. In theory, and he abounded in theory, his manners were purely democratic. It was by sheer habit and inadvertency that he permitted Furman, who had discovered a rucksack in a small shop in a town below, to carry both bottles of beer. The king had never, as a matter of fact, carried anything for himself in his life, and he had never noted that he did not do so. "'We will have nobody with us,' he said, at all. "'We will be perfectly simple.' So Furman carried the beer. As they walked up, it was the king made the pace rather than Furman. They talked of the conference before them, and Furman, with a certain want of assurance that would have surprised him in himself in the days of his professorship, sought to define the policy of his companion. In its broader form, sir, said Furman, I admit a certain plausibility in this project of Leblanc's. But I feel that although it may be advisable to set up some sort of general control for international affairs, a sort of Hague court with extended powers, that is no reason whatever for losing sight of the principles of national and imperial autonomy. Furman, said the king, I am going to set my brother kings a good example. Furman intimated a curiosity that veiled a dread. By chucking all that nonsense, said the king. He quickened his pace as Furman, who was already a little out of breath, betrayed a disposition to reply. "'I am going to chuck all that nonsense,' said the king, as Furman prepared to speak. "'I am going to fling my royalty and empire on the table and declare at once I don't mean to haggle. It's haggling, about rights, has been the devil in human affairs, for, always, I am going to stop this nonsense.' Furman halted abruptly. "'But, sir!' he cried. 
The king stopped six yards ahead of him and looked back at his adviser's perspiring visage. "'Do you really think, Furman, that I am here as—' as an infernal politician to put my crown and my flag and my claims and so forth in the way of peace that little frenchman is right you know he is right as well as i do those things are over we we kings and rulers and representatives have been at the very heart of the mischief of course we imply separation and of course separation means the threat of war and of course the threat of war means the accumulation of more and more atomic bombs the old game's up but i say we mustn't stand here you know the world waits don't you think the old game's up Furman? Furman adjusted a strap passed a hand over his wet forehead and followed earnestly I admit, sir, he said to a receding back, that there has to be some sort of hegemony, some sort of amphictyonic council. There's got to be one simple government for all the world, said the king over his shoulder. But as for a reckless, unqualified abandonment, sir, bang, cried the king. Furman made no answer to this interruption, but a faint shadow of annoyance passed across his heated features. "'Yesterday,' said the king, by way of explanation, "'the Japanese very nearly got San Francisco.' "'I hadn't heard, sir. "'The Americans ran the Japanese aeroplane down into the sea, "'and there the bomb got busted. "'Under the sea, sir?' "'Yes, submarine volcano. "'The steam is in sight of the California coast. "'It was as near as that. "'And with things like this happening, "'you want me to go up this hill and haggle?' "'Consider the effect of that upon my imperial cousin, and all the others.' "'He will haggle, sir.' "'Not a bit of it,' said the king. "'But, sir, Leblanc won't let him.' Freeman halted abruptly and gave a vicious pull at the offending strap. "'Sir, he will listen to his advisers,' he said, in a tone that in some subtle way seemed to implicate his master with the trouble of the knapsack. The king considered him. We will go just a little higher, he said. I want to find this unoccupied village they spoke of, and then we will drink that beer. It can't be far. We will drink the beer and throw away the bottles. And then, Furman, I shall ask you to look at things in a more generous light. Because, you know, you must. He turned about, and for some time the only sound they made was the noise of their boots upon the loose stones of the way and the irregular breathing of Furman. At length, as it seemed to Furman, or quite soon, as it seemed to the king, the gradient of the path diminished, the way widened out, and they found themselves in a very beautiful place indeed. It was one of those upland clusters of sheds and houses that are still to be found in the mountains of North Italy, buildings that were used only in the high summer, and which it was the custom to leave locked up and deserted through all the winter and spring and up to the middle of June. The buildings were of a soft-toned gray stone, buried in rich green grass, shadowed by chestnut trees, and lit by an extraordinary blaze of yellow broom. Never had the king seen broom so glorious. He shouted at the light of it, for it seemed to give out more sunlight even than it received. He sat down impulsively on a lichenous stone, tugged out his bread and cheese, and bad Furman thrust the beer into the shaded weeds to cool. 
"'The things people miss, Furman,' he said, "'who go up into the air in ships.' Furman looked around him with an ungenial eye. "'You see it at its best, sir,' he said, "'before the peasants come here again and make it filthy.' "'It would be beautiful anyhow,' said the king. "'Superficially, sir,' said Furman, "'but it stands for a social order that is fast vanishing away.' Indeed, judging by the grass between the stones and in the huts, I am inclined to doubt if it is in use even now. I suppose, said the king, they would come up immediately the hay on this flower meadow is cut. It would be those slow, creamy-colored beasts, I expect, one sees on the roads below, and swarthy girls with red handkerchiefs over their black hair. It is wonderful to think how long that beautiful old life lasted in the roman times and long ages before ever the rumor of the romans had come into these parts men drove their cattle up into these places as the summer came on how haunted is this place there have been quarrels here hopes children have played here and lived to be old crones and old gaffers and died and so it has gone on for thousands of lives lovers innumerable lovers have caressed amidst this golden broom he meditated over a busy mouthful of bread and cheese. "'We ought to have brought a tankard for that beer,' he said. Furman produced a folding aluminum cup, and the king was pleased to drink. "'I wish, sir,' said Furman, suddenly, "'I could induce you at least to delay your decision.' "'It's no good talking, Furman,' said the king. "'My mind's as clear as daylight.' "'Sire!' protested Furman, with his voice full of bread and cheese and genuine emotion. "'Have you no respect for your kingship?' The king paused before he answered with unwanted gravity. "'It's just because I have, Furman, that I won't be a puppet in this game of international politics.' He regarded his companion for a moment, and then remarked, "'Kingship! What do you know of kingship, Furman?' "'Yes!' cried the king to his astonished counsellor. For the first time in my life I am going to be a king. I am going to lead, and lead by my own authority. For a dozen generations my family has been a set of dummies in the hands of their advisers. Advisers! Now I am going to be a real king, and I am going to, to abolish, dispose of, finish the crown to which I have been a slave. But what a world of paralyzing shams this roaring stuff has ended! the rigid old world is in the melting pot again and i who seem to be no more than the stuffing inside a regal robe i am a king among kings i have to play my part at the head of things and put an end to blood and fire and idiot disorder but sir protested Furman, this man leblanc is right the whole world has got to be a republic one and indivisible you know that and my duty is to make that easy a king should lead his people. You want me to stick on their backs like some old man of the sea? Today must be a sacrament of kings. Our trust for mankind is done with and ended. We must part our robes among them. We must part our kingship among them, and say to them all, Now the king and every one must rule the world. Have you no sense of the magnificence of this occasion? you want me Furman. you want me to go up there and haggle like a damned little solicitor for some price some compensation some qualification Furman shrugged his shoulders and assumed an expression of despair meanwhile he conveyed one must eat
For a time neither spoke, and the king ate and turned over in his mind the phrases of the speech he intended to make to the conference. By virtue of the antiquity of his crown, he was to preside, and he intended to make his presidency memorable. Reassured of his eloquence, he considered the despondent and sulky Furman for a space. Furman, he said, you have idealized kingship. It has been my dream, sir, said Furman sorrowfully, to serve. At the levers, Furman, said the king. You are pleased to be unjust, said Furman, deeply hurt. I am pleased to be getting out of it, said the king. Oh, Furman, he went on, have you no thought for me? Will you never realize that I am not only flesh and blood, but an imagination, with its rights? I am a king in revolt against that fetter they put upon my head. I am a king awake. My reverend grandparents never in all their august lives had a waking moment. They loved the job that you, you advisers, gave them. They never had a doubt of it. It was like giving a doll to a woman who ought to have a child. They delighted in processions and opening things, and being read addresses to, and visiting triplets and nonagenarians, and all that sort of thing. Incredibly. They used to keep albums of cuttings from all the illustrated papers showing them at it, and if the press cutting parcels grew thin, they were worried. It was all that ever worried them. But there is something atavistic in me. I hark back to unconstitutional monarchs. They christened me too retrogressively, I think. I wanted to get things done. I was bored. I might have fallen into vice. Most intelligent and energetic princes do. But the palace precautions were unusually thorough. I was brought up in the purest court the world has ever seen. Alertly pure. So I read books, Furman, and went about asking questions. The thing was bound to happen to one of us sooner or later. Perhaps, too, very likely I'm not vicious. I don't think I am. He reflected. No, he said. Furman cleared his throat. I don't think you are, sir, he said. You prefer... He stopped short. He had been going to say talking. He substituted ideas. That world of royalty, the king went on, in a little while no one will understand it any more. It will become a riddle. Among other things, it was a world of perpetual best clothes. Everything was in its best clothes for us, and usually wearing bunting, with a cinema watching to see we took it properly. If you are a king, Furman, and you go and look at a regiment, it instantly stops whatever it is doing, changes into full uniform, and presents arms. When my august parents went in a train, the coal in the tender used to be whitened. It did, Furman, and if coal had been white instead of black, I have no doubt the authorities would have blackened it. That was the spirit of our treatment. People were always walking about with their faces to us. One never saw anything in profile. One got an impression of a world that was insanely focused on ourselves. And when I began to poke my little questions into the Lord Chancellor and the Archbishop and all the rest of them about what I should see if people turned round, the general effect I produced was that I wasn't by any means displaying the royal tact they had expected of me. He meditated for a time. And yet, you know, there is something in the kingship, Furman. It stiffened up my august little grandfather. I gave my grandmother a kind of awkward dignity even when she was cross, and she was very often cross. 
They both had a profound sense of responsibility. My poor father's health was wretched during his brief career. Nobody outside the circle knows just how he screwed himself up to things. My people expect it, he used to say of this tiresome duty or that. Most of the things they made him do were silly. It was part of a bad tradition. But there was nothing silly in the way he said about them. The spirit of kingship is a fine thing, Furman. I feel it in my bones. I do not know what I might not be if I were not a king. I could die for my people, Furman, and you couldn't. No, don't say you could die for me, because I know better. Don't think I forget my kingship, Furman. Don't imagine that. I am a king, a kingly king, by right divine. The fact that I am also a chattering young man makes not the slightest difference to that. But the proper textbook for kings, Furman, is none of the court memoirs and wealth politic books you would have me read. It is old Fraser's Golden Bough. Have you read that, Furman? Furman had. Those were the authentic kings. In the end, they were cut up and a bit given to everybody. They sprinkled the nations with kingship. Furman turned himself round and faced his royal master. "'What do you intend to do, sir?' he asked. "'If you will not listen to me, what do you propose to do this afternoon?' The king flicked crumbs from his coat. "'Manifestly, war has to stop forever, Furman. Manifestly, this can only be done by putting all the world under one government. Our crowns and flags are in the way. Manifestly, they must go.' "'Yes, sir,' interrupted Furman. "'But what government? "'I don't see what government you get by a universal abdication.' "'Well,' said the king, with his hands about his knees, "'we shall be the government.' "'The conference?' exclaimed Furman. "'Who else?' asked the king simply. "'It's perfectly simple,' he added to Furman's tremendous silence. "'But,' cried Furman, "'you must have sanctions.' Will there be no form of election, for example? Why should there be? asked the king, with intelligent curiosity. The consent of the governed. Furman, we are just going to lay down our differences and take over government, without any election at all, without any sanction. The governed will show their consent by silence. If any effective opposition arises, we shall ask it to come in and help. The true sanction of kingship is the grip upon the scepter. We aren't going to worry people to vote for us. I'm certain the mass of men does not want to be bothered with such things. We'll contrive a way for anyone interested to join in. That's quite enough in the way of democracy. Perhaps later, when things don't matter, we shall govern all right, Furman. Government only becomes difficult when the lawyers get hold of it. And since these troubles began, the lawyers are shy. Indeed, come to think of it, I wonder where all the lawyers are. Where are they? A lot, of course, were bagged, some of the worst ones, when they blew up my legislature. You never knew the late Lord Chancellor. Necessities bury rights, and create them. Lawyers live on dead rights disinterred. We've done with that way of living. We won't have more law than a code can cover, and beyond that government will be free. Before the sun sets today, Furman, trust me, we shall have made our abdications, all of us, and declared the world republic, supreme and indivisible. I wonder what my august grandmother would have made of it. 
all my rights. And then we shall go on governing. What else is there to do? All over the world we shall declare that there is no longer mine or thine but ours. China, the United States, two-thirds of Europe, will certainly fall in and obey. They will have to do so. What else can they do? Their official rulers are here with us. They won't be able to get together any sort of idea of not obeying us. Then we shall declare that every sort of property is held in trust for the Republic. But, sir, cried Furman, suddenly enlightened, has this been arranged already? My dear Furman, do you think we have come here, all of us, to talk at large? The talking has been done for half a century. Talking and writing. We are here to set the new thing, the simple, obvious, necessary thing, going. He stood up. Furman, forgetting the habits of a score of years, remained seated. Well, he said at last, and I have known nothing. The king smiled very cheerfully. He liked these talks with Furman. End of chapter 2nd Sections 9 through 10 and Chapter 3rd, Sections 1 through 2. Recording by William Tomko.